he looked back at me just as plain as day, and he said, I'm a member of the Ku Klux Klan. It would be my privilege to defend the Nazi. It would be my privilege to defend Charles Manson. People are interested in crime. There's no getting around it, and Americans love violence. Coming to a brothel, you're having the full fantasy experience with somebody who knows, let's say, that there's five different ways to give a handjob plus. You know, talk to me about morality. Shut up. I tell you where you can stick your morality, man. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of Unfiltered, the podcast. Uh, as always, uh, my name is Brian Prowskany. I am the producer and director of the series, and with me is my co-producer, Joyzel Acevedo. Hey. How are you, Joyzel? Pretty good. So today we actually have a very serious episode. This was a very interesting story that you kind of took care of this week. So can you tell me a little bit about who we're going to be hearing from today? So Reverend Juan Carlos Ruiz, he is a pastor here in New York City. And he's also one of the religious leaders who co-founded the New Sanctuary Coalition in 2007. Mm -hmm. What is that exactly? So that's modeled after the 1980s um, old sanctuary movement that happened. A lot of Guatemalan refugees and also refugees from El Salvador because they were fleeing the civil wars from those countries and they came to the U.S., uh, and as a result, a lot of church leaders like banded together and then um, they offered them sanctuary in the church and basically um, shelter these refugees. Uh, and then that way they wouldn't be um, deported from mm. the U.S. based on the, uh, you know, the damaging optics of seeing, you know, government agents storm into a church and taking away refugees and, you know. Right. So, so this is truly a, like a, a, a place to comfortably or uncomfortably um stay away from immigration officials. Right, exactly. And right now, Juan Carlos is basically, you know, offering the same sorts of services for today's undocumented immigrants. We've been part of this society. We are part of the fabric of who we are as Americans. We've been your nannies. We've been harvesting your vegetables. We've been your priest. We've been your social workers. We are here to contribute uh, to the economy, and we are human beings. I am Juan Carlos Ruiz, an organizer, a co-founder of the New Sanctuary Coalition. Practically, I am a minister for the Lutheran Church here in New York City. We work with families and communities who are facing deportation, many being targeted by a law that is unjust. And we seek as communities of faith to change the politics, not only of this administration, but of this, uh, of this country. Given my background in terms of being undocumented, uh, seeing my family with the same experience of being vulnerable, I have always been close to those communities that, you know, the legal status is questionable. I came to the States back in the 1980s following my family. My family had moved because of uh, the devaluation of the peso. They told me basically that they were not going back to Mexico, that they were planning to stay. This is very interesting. I mean, obviously, since the uh, Trump administration has been in office, this has been one of America's hottest topics. And, you know, in, in an attempt to not politicize the conversation, but just to respect opinions on it, you know, I do 
sort of recognize and understand both arguments in the conversation. Uh, I, I have, you know, friends who immigrated to the country legally, and it is a very tiring process. I think sometimes people don't understand how difficult the process is. Of Right. It can take decades. It really can. Yeah. It, I mean, I, I feel like there is sort of an ignorant perspective where people think it's like going to the DMV or something. And right. Just it, getting my license. Whoop. Exactly. <laughs> I'm a U.S. And citizen. Yay. And, and it, it is not simply that easy. But... You know, for the people that did go through that, you know, even sometimes they kind of look, you know, down on people that didn't go through the same process right. that they did. But there's important things that we need to recognize in that, you know, the majority of the people that we're talking about today came to this country majorly to find employment. Um, and also, you know, these people constitute 50% of our agriculture force. So they have become a necessary ingredient in what America is today. Right. They're, you know, they're definitely part of our economy, whether some of us like to, you know, acknowledge that or not. Right, right. So Juan Carlos was born in Mexico, but then came to the States sometime in the... In the 80s, yeah. So Juan Carlos uh, studied to become a priest for the Catholic Church in Mexico, and he started going to seminary at the age of 13. And he comes from a family that's really religious. Um, and they, back in Mexico, his parents were actually part of this very social... Um, activism-y Catholic movement uh, that, you know, when he continued his studies in the U.S. after he migrated, he was kind of disappointed that, you know, that same Catholic movement that he was a part of and that he wanted to join wasn't really available here. And so he was undocumented here for about eight years. And in 1995, he was ordained. And then six years later, in 2001, he became a U.S. citizen. But, you know, with his social activism and his political engagement, he actually got in trouble with the Catholic Church and was later ousted. Around 2000, we formed a network of churches and of people who were giving voice uh, to the rising concerns of uh, farm workers. We also founded some free clinics. All my career with the Catholic Church was basically advocating, organizing, and working with the neglected people, the underdog and that plunged me into hot waters. And more and more, we are being accustomed to seeing weaponized people going into our homes, into our communities, kidnapping people away. What is the message? Is it that the immigrant is more dangerous than any other person? We have a whole apparatus that criminalizes people, that sees people, not as people, but as a threat. And that's really dangerous. Our civil liberties are being eroded. We have many people who are basically uh, right now being targeted by this administration because they haven't been able to regularize their status. And there are no people that came here yesterday. They've been with us for the last uh, four decades, 40 years, and they are still checking in. You know, the, the system works like the parole system. You have to be under supervision. So we have about 2.3 million people nationally checking in. That includes the DACA people, that includes the temporary protected status people. And we talk about these 2.3 million people being the low hanging fruit, which the administration is going after. So, first of all, it's interesting to note that ICE wasn't really a thing until March 2003. And 
you know, that came from the Homeland Security Act of 2002, which is a result of the attacks on 9-11. 9-11, right. Yeah. yeah. So prior to this, the atmosphere, especially with, you know, under President Trump, wasn't as militant. As it is today. Exactly. Well, it's interesting because it's like ICE has become a household name, I think, for the rest of the country right now. Yeah, And, yeah. and it really wasn't that way previously. No. Yeah. While researching this stuff, I came across footage um, that shows just a typical, you know, nice suburban neighborhood in New York, in Queens. And the camera shows this nice little yellow school bus driving down the street. And then it pans and then you see ICE agents just knocking on doors. And the camera pans again and you just see them like s- like scouting out a driveway in between cars. And they have these body vests on that say eyes and it's kind of scary it's like okay right. you know kids are going to school and oh my god look there's all these you know the, the, armed the, people the militias coming to town yeah it felt yeah. like they were going on a hunt right i mean it's 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 tough like i said earlier i mean you know you sort of have this these two sides of this argument where you have the people that you feel that should go through the documentation properly but then as was mentioned uh, you know, there are people that have been here for decades, you know, that have no connection to um, to these countries that ICE is trying to force them to go back to. So, you know, it's obviously a very complicated issue, but there's so many sad stories that are coming out of this. And the unfortunate thing is that even though statements are made uh, about criminals and rapists and all these other things, that type of specification doesn't really seem to come into play when ICE is in town. It's pretty much, it doesn't matter if you're a murderer or a school teacher. No, it doesn't. And as the reverend says himself, you have these 2.3 million people checking in nationwide with their, you know, immigration agents. And what's interesting is that, you know, if you don't, right, if you don't go to these check-ins, you know, they deport you. But even if you do go and if you do what you're supposed to do, you can just check in and they'll be like, actually, we're going to deport you and you can't go home. So checking in is also kind of you're, you're taking a big risk whether you do it or not. Right. Um And then from there, you know, you can land in a detention center and then, you know, all of the things that follow that. So ICE is a very, you know, threatening force in the undocumented immigrant community. I think there is this sense that we have a law that is fair and a law that is processing people in an effective way. We know that the law, like slavery, one point was legal. We know that we as religious leaders, as people of conscience, have the obligation to break that law because it is an unjust law. The government talks about sensitive spaces, places where La Migra ICE cannot violate. Those sensitive spaces are schools, clinics, hospitals, and churches. Here in New York, we have seen ICE violating some of the schools. We have seen them violating some of the hospitals. So Aura Hernandez uh, came to one of our clinics, kind of despairing because she had a final order of deportation on March 1st. Right away, we saw that uh, she didn't have much time When she came in in 2004, the Border Patrol uh, took her to a processing center. One of the Border Patrol officials raped her, so that's under investigation. She came to us because she has two U.S. children that she didn't want to leave behind, and also two of her brothers uh, have been killed recently. 
in Guatemala, and she has made a life for herself. To go back for her was sending her back to her certain death. So Outer Hernandez has been a very big local story for those of us that live here in New York. And it's pretty crazy how she's actually one of two women in the city right now uh, that have been finding sanctuary within these church walls. Yeah, and interesting to note, uh, one of two mothers, because um, both of the women who are finding sanctuary are uh, moms, and they don't want to leave their kids behind. Right. So Aura herself, on February 27th, she basically went to one of the free legal clinics that the new sanctuary does, which, by the way, I went to one myself to check it out. It was really interesting. There were a lot of lawyers and a lot of legal aides, and it's pretty much these you know, immigrants, whether they're undocumented or in the process of being documented, or even if they, they are documented right now, they can just go for free legal help um, so that you know, if they need somebody to look at their paperwork, they need help filing something because they don't know English, they can just show up to one of these things and get the help that they need. And I was there helping to translate, and it was really interesting. And so that's what Aura did herself. She went to one of these clinics because she needed help. Uh, she had this final deportation notice uh, that was ordered for March 1st. And this being February 27th, she didn't have much time, as he says himself. Mm-hmm. He didn't, she didn't have much time. So Aura Hernandez actually uh, got stopped driving on a two-way street that's a one-way on Sundays by a police officer. Um, and she apparently was really frightened. And then when he asked her for documentation, um, you know, registration of the car, et cetera, she couldn't really provide any paperwork for him. So then the officer basically found out that, you know, she's an undocumented immigrant and then she had this deportation order set because way back in 2004, when she first came into the country, she didn't really check in with officials. Because back then in 04, when she came into the country and she was held in the detention center, she was supposed to check in with officials afterwards. But she was so scared that she just decided to go all the way to New York from Texas and live uh, with her family members there. Right. So now fast forward to present day. She has a young toddler daughter. She's adorable. She's very cute, very full of excitement. Yeah. And then she also has a 10-year-old son. And they were both born in the U.S. And now she's afraid that if she does get deported back to Guatemala, she's going to leave them behind. Right. You know, she also doesn't want to take them with her to the violence that's occurring. It's very, uh, it's very striking too. I mean, to see it's kind, it, it, it is bizarre to live inside of a church, you know, and and. Uh, her daughter is so cute, um, but she's so dwarfed by her surroundings. It's just this huge, vacant church that right. they're living in that they're never leaving. And it's, you know, we both got the opportunity to see them kind of hang out and play within the church, which is their typical day-to-day. But it is kind of surreal. I mean, it's it's sort of, you know, there's, there's not walls anywhere. I know where she stays. It's kind of just a subsection of the church itself. And it's just this kind of giant building that when there's no service or anything, they're just kind of like you know, wandering in, the, in, in these massive uh, cathedral-like uh, structure. And, it, it's, and it's, it's kind of weird. It's, it's, I, I guess it's warming, but it must feel very isolating. And it must, I would imagine, builds anxiety the longer that you stay within a place like this. You also have to understand that when you walk into this church, there are no pews. Um, it's very empty. So you just get this grand view kind of of the entire space. And it's very, it's very quiet. Um, apparently, you know, when there aren't a lot of people there and you hear things echo. Uh, and I actually read in an article that Aura herself says it's very scary um, 
when everybody leaves and it's just her and her daughter at night. You know, I asked her, what does she do on a day-to-day basis? And all she really answered was that she just studies. She studies and she reads up on the laws because she really just wants to get out. Right. Um, she does not want to be there. She doesn't really want to. She doesn't see herself there for an indefinite period of time. Right. Um, she really believes this is temporary. And seeing the psychological damage that this is doing to her children, she really is just trying to leave for the sake of her family. You know, I hope no matter where you stand on this argument that just as human beings, we can appreciate the length that certain people are, are trying to do uh, to do what's best for their families, right? Which is what everyone wants to do at the end of the day. Right. Um, so I think it's, you know, sometimes you hear this criticism of, you know, you're lazy for not pursuing these uh, immigration documents. And, you know, I, I, and I just think that's, like I said, no matter where you stand on the argument, I think that's just like a, a false thing to say when you see someone like Auda who is basically just turning her life upside down in a very inconvenient way uh, to do what she generally believes is the best for her family. Right. She doesn't want to tear her family apart. And she says herself that, you know, her baby girl can tell, you know, that they're not at home that she doesn't really understand what's going on, but she senses that things aren't right, that they don't see their other family members as often as they used to. And more importantly, or rather more significantly, it's her 10-year-old son who, because he's older and he understands more, he's really taking the brunt of this uh, this move. And he's been apparently, when you know, after the end of their visits, he leaves you know, crying. And he's really scared that one day you know, he'll go to see her after school at the church, and she's just going to be gone. And she's just gone. Yeah. We see that this administration, given their explicit racism, allows and gives license to a great deal of abuse, a great deal of fear in our communities. Maybe one of the most significant questions nowadays is, How do we keep our humanity in this, in human times? How do we keep being sane in such a maddening world? I need to remind myself and I need to remind people that our humanity is in danger. We need to somehow find ways of resisting together, celebrating our diversity, and really organize ourselves so that the change that we need may be a reality so that everybody can enjoy and live in dignity and in peace. So that was the Reverend Juan Carlos Ruiz. And what did you think? I think it's interesting. You know, I mean, I think it's really it's important to hear from people um, like Reverend Ruiz um, when, you know, we have such a polarized argument over this conversation. Um, sometimes I feel like we look at people as statistics and not as people. And I think that's one of the most important things that we need to do when looking at this situation. And, um, you know, whether you agree with what he says or not, and as our comments section in uh, from the video oh boy. illustrates, uh, the many, many people uh, do not agree uh, with what Reverend Ruiz is saying. Uh, but at least it's opening up the discussion. And, and I think it's really important that like I said, we see these people as people, and it sort of kind of paints a different picture of the severity of what these people are trying to do to save themselves and their family members. And that actually leads into our bonus clip, um, which Reverend Rees gets more into the specifics of why is it that you know we are getting 
all of these undocumented immigrants coming to the U.S. One story is worse than the, the next. What's causing us to migrate, it's the economic policies, military policies that we impose around the globe. Our government is pretty much responsible for the displacement of hundreds and hundreds and thousands of people. As we see in Syria, as we see in other parts of the countries nowadays. And people who are fleeing the violence. We are talking about paramilitary forces. We are talking about weaponized people that number the thousands. And I do have to say, you know, given our trade, we are the ones who provide the weapons. We have in our hands a phenomenon that is homegrown. The instability of our countries uh, serve our economic-driven policies that fatten the pockets of a few of our people here who are making a lot of money just to, to keep the flow of weapons, to keep this flow of humanity back and forth. So, you know... These are pretty bold statements, to say the least. This has been one of the backbones of uh, Reverend Ruiz's argument is that, you know, and I've heard him mention it at many press conferences, that, you know, the reason people are here is because we as a country are there in their countries. Yeah, I mean, in one article, he says this quote, as long as the flow of military and economic aid keeps flooding the global south, there always will be displaced people bubbling up. Forgive the cliche, but we are here because you are there. Right. And so for him, this is very much not just, you know, he also mentions that the the blame is also not all in the U.S., that the home countries are also at sometimes at fault, but that this is most definitely a two-way street. Right. In which a lot of people don't think that way. A lot of people no. uh, believe that this is just, you know, me- you know, Mexico sending their worst, as Trump says. And Well, I think that's, that's a very th- important thing to understand when you're having this argument is that, you know, people aren't trying to, you know, necessarily take advantage of us. People right. are looking for refuge in the only place they can think of. Right. I mean, there's, you know, this is not something where oh, I just want to make a little bit more money. This is something like, you know, there's violence going on. There's all these drug gangs. Um, There's all these, as he says himself, paramilitary forces um, in my country. And there's really no way out. Um, And the nearest country that provides a safe haven is the United States, you know. And if you are, I mean, you know, think of any, if you have a family and you're in a situation where, you know, your country has now become a completely unsafe place to live and and violence is now a daily reality for you and your children, you have to do something about it. And, you know, I understand that, you know, there there, there are certain lengths and certain processes in play here and, and people do have to kind of mind their own, so not everybody wants, you know, to share everything. But I think it's important that, you know, if you put yourself in certain other people's shoes, uh, you would probably be surprised that you would kind of do a similar thing that you might even be condemning. Exactly. And uh, even more to that point, it's kind of just like when you're in that situation, the last thing you're thinking about is, oh, do I have my right documents? Do I have like, you know, am I, you know, do I have this uh, ID card that I need or this sort of like reason that the U.S. will accept? Like you just need to go. So so that's really the challenge with this argument is because, you know, there's legitimate grievances on both sides. Um, You know, these people that are fleeing some of these horrible situations are really trying to protect their family. 
Uh, but at the same time, some of the places that they're going to in the States to occupy are, you know, filled with American citizens who are also trying to protect their own family. So it is a very difficult situation where you can definitely understand both sides of the argument. Um, but I think it's important that we listen to both sides of the argument. Exactly. Well said. So thanks for listening to this week's Unfiltered podcast. Next week, we have a very tonally different episode, but still a very serious one. We'll be talking with adult film star Ginger Banks about the concerns of mental health and sexual abuse within the porn industry. Right, especially on the heels of the suicides that have been happening with uh, porn stars. Right, exactly. So thanks for tuning in, and you can catch Unfiltered the Podcast every Friday on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen.